Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, I'm here with another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by Laura Deming. Uh, Laura Deming is the founder of Longevity Fund and Age One. Laura, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Laura, what is Longevity Fund? So we are a venture fund that invests in early stage companies developing drugs for aging and age-related diseases. So you, in past interviews, you've talked about how you came up at a time that was sort of perfect to do this work. And if you had been born maybe 10 years earlier, maybe five years earlier, maybe it might've been too early. Unpack that idea. So one fascinating fact is the first paper published showing a twofold increase in lifespan or any organism was uh, right about the year that I was born. And so I always feel like it's been a very lucky coincidence that this work started to become very scientific right around the time that um, sort of I was you know getting a start in science. And as you were getting started in science, if I understand the story correctly, you were thinking about curing cancer and then your dad or, or someone told you that if you could cure age you know if you could address aging directly that'd be addressing the root problem whereas cancer is sort of a subsector of that problem and right now we're sort of spending our, our time solving things that are that are like branches but not the root root causes yeah exactly back that idea the general idea is that you know if you can work on one problem that uh, branches out into multiple smaller problems like why would you work on the multiple smaller problems and as a kid, the idea that aging was a kind of causal factor behind all the pathologies that we see that arise with age was was pretty self-evident. And so it was surprising, actually, when I moved to the U.S., that like most people didn't think that way. It was, like seemed like the obvious thing to assume. I think, I think the major question is like, is aging a thing? Like, is there some holistic, comprehensive like phenomenon that we can call aging, or is that just like a name that we're slapping onto the collection of those phenomena? Right? Like each of which individually you have to address. And so I think I think like the funny thing most people don't realize is like you know the worst case scenario for like working on aging research is like you end up. Up, you know, basically solving each disease individually. Like that, like that is like the logical extension, like worst case scenarios, you just end up sort of doing what everyone else is doing. The best case scenario, in the sense of work on aging research, is that, you know, maybe you find one kind of holistic cause of kind of like all these different downstream pathologies, and then, okay, well, it's definitely worth uh, kind of, you know, attempting to find that if you can. And then, like, you know, worst case scenario, you just work on everything else. Right. And there's sort of two major reasons that there's been some pushback to this idea. One is sort of ethics, which you can get into later, but the other is sort of, is it feasible or, or is it possible? And if I understand correctly from your work in the last, however many so years, there've been discoveries that animals are living to, you know, hundred even longer and that we don't exactly know where, where the cutoff point is. So what have we found from studying animals that applies to how long? So the, the fascinating fact, if you look at the animal kingdom, you know, say you take like you know, 46 different species, it's a great nature paper on this, you can see that their lifespans are extraordinarily diverse. So we kind of, as humans, assume that we're very anthropocentric. We think that our lifespans, you know, we, we age, you know, we age exponentially with time, and we assume that that's kind of like a sort of you know, a very widespread phenomenon. But really, looking at the animal kingdom, you know, many animals uh, don't age. They they age, you know, they, they get less mortality right year over year um, as they get older. Some have an increase in fertility over time. And so this idea that, like, aging is somehow inherent to all biology is, I think, flawed if you actually look at the animal kingdom. Um, as, as far as we can see, you know, maybe, maybe some of these animals thousands of years later are dying, but, you know, they're definitely not dying in ways that we'd expect, given our kind of anthropocentric view. The other kind of fascinating fact that you see if you look at the animal kingdom is that, like, animals that are super similar actually age differently. So rats, naked mole rats, very similar rats live maybe, you know, between, you know, sort of three to four years. Um, naked mole rats are, you know, going up to age 30, and they're still just, like, you know, blowing past that watermark and don't appear to be, like, uh, increasing mortality. And so, you know, it's like these animals are so physiologically similar. They're almost, you know, sort of, you know, what, what is, like, the major organ between the two that is like the aging organ um there doesn't seem to be one and so i, I think we're, we end up in this place of like you know either there, there's some kind of like hidden ethereal phenomenon that like is pushing these entropic kind of like force to go faster in one animal or there's some kind of like genetic switch that's being flipped between the two and like that's or, you know, or some kind of programmed you know response among, amongst all the cells of one animal and so i think you know our, our our best case scenario would be like that we can find that and then use that for human health in addition to being uh developments in the science which we'll get into in a bit there's also been sort of developments in the, in the tooling and infrastructure and interesting sort of pushes the sort of theme of biology as engineering can you sort of unpack what in the last decade or so has led to more companies being able to be built and started in the space? Yeah. So super important point. If you were around, you know, in like 200, 400 BC, right, you would just be a fish out of water trying to work on this stuff. Like it'd be a very bad time to work on aging research. 
There's actually a funny side note manuscript where somebody was talking about like evolution and like fishes coming out of water and becoming like mammals. Um, even I think it's going to be sea, but sort of like that. That is like there was an actual lot of evidence for that. Um, but so like that aside, you know, it, it would just like been a very bad time to be working on this stuff. And so you know, I, I think one, a couple of things have happened in the 20th century in biology. Major one, right? 1953, you have like the discovery of the structure of DNA. Huge deal. Um, for the first time, you're linking up kind of the phenomenology of kind of like genetics as we've observed it in like sheep breeding, right? All the way down to like the actual physical kind of like structure that is giving rise to like that hereditary pattern. And so, you know, like in the 1970s, 1980s, for the first time, you have cloning. You able to like isolate individual genes and manipulate them and kind of make you know, copies of proteins that they produce. And, you know, th- this all just gives rise to the ability to like, you know, find individual genes. So, like, you know, the first ever time that we observe a kind of single mutant that is making a worm live longer about, you know, 50% in that, you know, first study is, is like 1983, right? So right around the time that we're like, you know, within decades of kind of like our understanding of the structure of DNA, we, we do the work enabled by that and longevity, um, that, that, that we can kind of like then use to, um, kind of, uh, sort of progress further studies. And so, you know, we're able to clone mice and then like, you know, so the first ever long-lived mice start to be created. And it's just, it's, it's very obvious, right? Like if you want to do these basic things to explore longevity, that you have to wait for the tools that enable you to do those things to arise. Yeah. And so why is, you know, you're, you're, discovering all this, you're researching all this, you're a scientist yourself. Why is starting a, a fund in a VC fund the best way for Laura Deming to make an impact in this space? I always say personal questions. So like, you know, I, I love science. Like if I had my druthers, I would just like, you know, go be a scientist completely. But, you know, I think one, one of the really, you know, just fascinating large chasms of just like that, like just, you know, very fascinating fact is that there's just like this lack of capital in, um, science, like just an enormous lack of capital I mean, compared to the amount of value that science creates, which you know, I don't want to try and calculate off the cuff, like on this podcast, which like takes some conductors, like one basic example, kind of like Einstein, like, you know, early 1900s. They're like the amount of capital available to fund science is like super limited and it comes from like a couple sources, right? And so it's sort of like you have this like monopoly on providing capital to like fund science that, you know, basically controls like the way that science is, is sort of done. And like, you know, sort of no, no like recourse for somebody else to get an innovative kind of idea, like race capital independently, right? You know, Alfred Loomis, like the early 1900s, you know, built a mansion and kind of like upper New York and sort of like, you know, both scientists over from Europe to kind of like, you know, work on sort of different projects was the father of ultrasound, like creating labs. I think like that, that, that was actually a very valuable kind of pursuit. And so I think venture is important to work on because just, I think the capital, one of the biggest problems that science faces, people say it's social and to some degree maybe it is, but I think it's really just capital, like having competitive capital that is like very intelligently trying to allocate itself to different projects and return value on those projects. And so I think that, you know, that's why we have a fund is sort of just like, I think, I think aging is, is you know, the, you know if, even if I start with a thesis like securitizing science is important, if I were to take that thesis, you know, to its logical conclusion, I would start with aging in a sense because aging is one of the most undervalued areas of science, right? Sort of like compared to every other area is one of the least funded, kind of least recognized. Um, it, it, it's changing a little bit now, but you know, and, and if you compare the potential impact of the space, it's just like if you were to invest, you know, if you, you're putting your, your Warren Buffett hat, like walk into all of science on the first day, where would you invest? Like, you, I would probably pick aging as like one of my top five theses. Right. Talk more. You mentioned securitizing science, re-envisioning a world in which there's a Kickstarter for so like. What? Oh, sorry. Yeah, very loaded word. I shouldn't use a word that like has associations with like with CDOs or sort of like you know bad mortgages. But um, you know, I, I think you know basically. In the world, like, you know, there's, there's, all, there's all this capital and the, the capital really needs a return. And so where do you put the capital? You can put it into like bonds, right? So you get like, you know, 3% return. Yes. Um, like that's, that's great. Or you can like invest in kind of like a lot of things that have more risk associated with them, like potentially higher upside, right? And so if you are, you know, trying to allocate, you know, all, all this like massive amounts of capital, you know, you're, you're kind of looking for these opportunities of like, you know, where, where can I go and deploy it fast? And so I think one fascinating thing is sort of like, you know, what are, what are kind of the, the assets or markets that are not yet available to that capital, right? You know, like where there's enormous value being created, but if it's captured, like, you know, if, if something were financed more, you'd get like a much higher return, but like that it just isn't being done today. You know, venture capital is a recent phenomenon, right? It just like arose like in the 20th century. Well, I mean, so you would argue that it, uh, someone argued that it arose, you know, with the whaling ships and kind of like that was the original and like, you know, many of the sort of, you know, great PCs around here have stories to tell about that. But, you know, I think kind of as we, the technology sort of focused venture capital, like, you know, Arthur Rock, et cetera, like the, you know, 20th century. And so the question is like, is, are there different markets like that where, you know, we should be putting a lot more capital to work, basically enabling things that create a lot of value and capture that value that, that would kind of help the world move forward, et cetera. And I think venture is like the, the logical place to start if you want to work on that. Cause like that, that is where you can find the most scientifically relevant, interesting, fascinating ideas to high upside and kind of like invest capital into them. But I think, you know, if you think about all of science, it's sort of like, at what point does it stop? Right? Like at what point can you stop securitizing things? Or, you know, sorry, when I say securitizing, I, I, I'm probably using that incorrectly. What I mean is like, you know, providing a, a competitive market of capital for that, like those projects. And I think, I think maybe one thesis would be like the patent sort of lifetime is a natural stopping point because if you literally 
can't protect the innovations made like 20 years ago, but have to disclose them, which, you know, maybe you could argue like, just trade secret everything, but like that doesn't seem like a great path for like science in general. Then like maybe that's a logical stopping part. Like, you know, you should invest in scientific ideas that are like, 20 years out, but like not, not any further. Yeah. Unfortunately with patents, sort of thing, that's, that's, that's one, that's, that's one kind of like hard, hard kind of limit that I, I don't think that I really yet, yeah, like fully understand like how, how limited that is. How should patents work, or like what should change? Yeah, well, because it's very like you know, if you if you're inv- if you're investing and you assume that you, you say so you say you're even philanthropic, right? And you want to create like a vertex sort of sorry uh, CF like foundation, and, and you kind of want to just pour capital into science and make enough of a return that you can then like you know become self sustaining and, and and you know also kind of you know help help grow science more as you get more capital back, and you invest in something. And, and like it's a you know sort of specific sequence of a drug, and you want to develop that, and it takes more than twenty years to develop. Like you should, it's illo- it's not logical for you to invest a ton of money into that unless it's like you know you can invest enough that at the point at which the person does create the first you know patent that is worthwhile, then they'll have wanted to work with you because you have a good reputation for like you know sort of paying them you know sort of to do their research for you know basically free. And so I, I think that it just like the, the patent the sort of patent term doesn't prevent you from making scientific investments early, but it does make it a lot more sort of hard to grow that market as a start. I think you have to kind of like grow backwards towards as opposed to like start with that and then grow forwards. At the risk of potentially parodying myself, could you tokenize it in science? Like, you know, tokenization is trying to do. What does that even mean? Like, what <laughs> is, is trying? What would that imply? Is trying to make it open source, but create financial incentives for people to see upside based on usage. I think this, this is something that a, a lot of friends have been interested in. My, my dad is actually sort of like the first person that yeah, I was talking about this stuff, but like, you know, ba- you know, basically there's this idea of like, you know, if you have an API, um, you can track how many times someone calls it. And so it's like, well, you know, if I want to pay for the use of some service, like I, I literally have like a quantitative metric of that. In science, like, you know, we have citations, but there, there's no, there's no like, Excellent API. Really, like, I think some friends and I were recently talking about, like, if you wanted to track the, like, contribution of David Hume to, like, all of society today, like, how, how would you go about retracing the steps all the way back to Hume? How would you think about calculating that? And, like, who would do that and, and why? Uh, and so it's like, even if you wanted to pay people based on your use of their ideas, like, how, you know, how, how would you even kind of, you know, calc- think about setting up the market? I think it's sort of like, yeah, hard, hard to, I think one of the fascinating things about kind of working in venture today and kind of like in like today's world, just like thinking about the world that you want, like this ideal, beautiful world in which like science is like fully, you know, competitively backed and kind of like given like the sort of tiny, like, yeah, tiny, like scarce amounts of capital that we have and kind of like the weird ways that they're locked up right now. Like how do we possibly work backwards to kind of encompass like all of that? Yeah. How do you think about venture as a category to invest in science as opposed to like private equity or university funding or government funding, like sort of comparing the different sort of funding mechanisms? we have in um i mean <laughs> i think past a certain point like it, this is kind of a, a, dumb, a sort of generalization but i think like you know what really separates a lot of these entities might be kind of like um just they're they're kind of social communities that are they're around them as opposed to kind of like because you know structurally right like universities and non-profit quote unquote like there are certain tax sort of things are different there like you know it, it like it, it you know it takes in revenue it has an endowment you know it takes in revenue like you know pays off interest hhmi actually you know hilariously in 2016 got more Royalty revenue than it did like endowment revenue, which was twenty billion dollars endowment, which I thought was like absolutely from one patent. It actually got like more return than like you know the interest off its like twenty billion dollar endowment. So like, that's a fascinating fact. But you know, I, I don't know if I have a good answer to the question. I don't. I don't really view those entities as separate. I view them more as just like separate communities that are all doing so. Like everyone's trying to make a profit off of their capital in order to be able to like do whatever they want in life. And like you know, private equity and venture and like you know, it actually it's fascinating. There's been this recent trend where private equity has been coming more into venture rights. So Bridge Bio launched in San Francisco. Just like a lot of has like this innovative structure where you know they have a bunch of kind of like small genetics focused companies under like one LLC. Uh, they're backed by KKR, right? So like private equity firm coming in, and then you have you know like Kane being bought out by I think Blackstone, and so you know just like why are they doing that? Yes. <laughs> like, why is private equity getting into venture? I am not uh, any kind of intelligent thinker on like public markets. I, I think one thing that has happened is like hedge funds have been, if you talk to a lot of hedge fund managers, there's like this enormous groaning about like how it's really hard to find good opportunities. Oh, we should all quote unquote go into venture because like, that's where all the easy money is. <laughs> we're just sitting there like, do you, like, do you understand how hard it is to like price like non-publicly traded assets? Like when you don't have, you know, it's like differential information. And so like, like this really feels like maybe discounting of like how hard or also jobs are. But um, I think there might be some like perception on the hedge fund side that like there's more of a greenfield and sort of venture so like more capital should flow there so yeah. to find good opportunities on the public markets i want to pause the podcast to remind the listeners a couple things one is if you listen to this uh this podcast normally at 1.5 x speed you might have to listen to this one at <laughs> 0.5 x speed uh no no because i i talk uh, we both talk fast and two that our audio engineer colin has been vociferously nodding his head the entire time making me feel like i'm funk master flex so i uh thank you colin so Longevity Fund uh, is funding companies' products related that are 
not just helping us live longer, but also help us live healthier for longer. Talk a little bit about what types of companies that, that could look like. If you had to make a list of like the subsectors of which you you invest, how would you sort of market there, that? So, I mean, really, like, you know, we, we think about the problem in, like, sort of multiple sectors, right? Like, you know, there's kinds of this general thesis, like, well, if you wanted to make longevity go faster and you created, like, the best microscope in the world, like, maybe that would have more of an impact on longevity than kind of, like, investing in, like, one therapy with, like, a 10% chance of success. And so I, th- I think we view our role as kind of, a, you know, a couple of things. You know, one, one of our first focuses with our first fund and somewhat sold our second fund is sort of, like, companies that are working, that have, like, lead assets that we think have some you know, non-zero chance of like impacting human lifespan, right? And like they can be developed for any disease, but you know, there are some companies in our portfolio that are working on drugs for, you know, say metabolic disease or, you know, just a, a variety of things. But if you like really get the drug, it's like, wow, that's targeting a pathway that's like really relevant to longevity. And like if it were to be approved and it were safe for kind of chronic use and like the in most indications that we're, we're looking at are kind of like relevant to chronic use, then you, you might see some kind of impact on longevity from this therapy. And so to, to us, like, I think when, when I think about like the, the impact of the fund, you know, what's important to do is sort of like, well, just getting one drug to market that impacts human lifespan in a measurable fashion would, I think, completely change how we think about medicine just, you know, permanently, right? Like once you know that's possible, it's hard to justify working on things that don't involve that. Unless you think there's only like one thing that does that, right? Which is like probably, you know, somewhat impossible. That'd be like one example. And then a specific instantiation of that would be like our first investment ever was in a company called Unity Biotechnology, which is working on getting rid of like the oldest old fraction of your cells. It's a, you know, fascinating thesis that it's so simple, right? Like, you, it shouldn't be the case if you just get rid of, like, the oldest, you know, tiny fraction of your cells, um, that that should have any impact on longevity. But, you know, it makes wild-type mice live about 30 along the normal. It eliminates most, or sort of reverses, you know, many sort of quantities of aging and then sort of in life. And so, yeah, I, I think that's just kind of, like, a wonderful company as one example. Is it one of the only companies, public companies, addressing longevity? There are more now. So, so a company called Ajax just uh, debuted on the public stock market. I think this this month, and you know, exciting for them. Have you uh, made your first investment maybe five years ago, seven years ago, five years ago? How has even the field evolved in the last five years? To be clear, the first time that I tried to raise money for the fund was in 2011, so seven right, years ago. Yeah. And the first investment I made was uh, five years ago. So it took me two years to raise the first fund, and that gives some indication of like how. I mean, the environment was, was so hostile to the idea of aging. There were a few people who did not think this way. So, you know, Bob Nelson Arch, for example, at that time was, you know, with, with uh, Ned there considering kind of like, and he had worked on like a company called Elixir previously, I mean, to his great credit, had like actually started a company in the aging space and it you know, didn't end up working out, but sort of like, you know, had the foresight to think about it. A couple other people, but, you know, really aging was was not a term like, it was like I mean, saying, you know, in college, like 2006, right? Sort of like it, the word would not have made sense to most people. It would have sounded like somewhat infeasible. And, you know, I talked to, like, hundreds, like, literally hundreds of people and just, like, would get no's from all of them. And the only reason they would talk to me was sort of, like, you know, out of kindness, really, for, like, a student. And so, I, and, and now, like, we get, you know, just solicitations from every possible source to, like, you know, invest in this space. How can we get involved? And so is aging a subsector of, like, biotech investing in the same way that maybe the internet was a subsector of, like, technology investing and in a way in which it might... It, biotech might become it might become synonymous in the future. Biotech industry is like an interesting one to invest in because right? sort of like your, your major constraint and, bi- and this is the reason to start a fund as opposed to company sometimes is like your, your major constraint is like really just capital, right? So sort of like the the amounts of capital required to get drugs approved are just it, they are extremely large. And there's there are some ways you can think about like reducing that cost, but you know pretty hard right now. And so if you're investing in biotech, it, I think the, it's you know very lucrative potentially because sort of like you have these like opportunities that are very hard to value and like you can find the correct ones it makes sense and so and the question is like where, where should you put your capital today right if you are a investor should you put your capital into biotech you know past returns would argue yes but like deals are having less and less structured and so sort of like maybe this argument like future returns would, like not really match that if you're putting capital into biotech where do you put it i, I think aging is kind of like uniquely well positioned to like something you should take advantage of because like not only is sort of like it's taking advantage of like all the recent platform advances right where we had like the idea of like a cancer gene like in you know, the 1980s or something and then we didn't act on it until kind of like you know we were able to like now, now that we can act on all these things you know what is the one area of biology that's like undervalued from a brand perspective where people are like not thinking about it, not for like rational reasons, but sort of more kind of like, you know, it hasn't really been, you know, actively explored and like brought up, brought and sort of like played with it. I think like aging kind of fills that role. So yeah, like undervalued area of like biotechnology in general. And so you had the evolution of your belief that, hey, instead of working on cancer, I'm going to work on aging. Yet other people are still working on cancer and lots of other diseases and probably have, I guess, what's the strongest Steelman counter argument to why people instead of, should, of working on aging should work on other specific either disease related or the problem the problem just seems enormously hard like if you consider solving aging it, it is a problem that encompasses cancer and so the idea that that could be easier or more tractable than solving cancer seems extremely silly right it should be strictly harder so i think 
if, if you're, and there's, there's another also, you know, part of this, which is that if you are a PI coming out and you want to get a great grant or you want some kind of recognition for your research, it, it may historically have been easier to get a grant for an area like cancer where there's a lot more advocacy funding and kind of like public interest than aging. I think that's changing now actually where the young Turks are finding that their best labs um, or the, the kind of their best career can be built, you know, in some small fraction of them by actually being the few to kind of like go into this fringe area, but then bring to it like a level of discipline rigor that, you know, is not encountered or wasn't there previously. And so, you know, that might be seen as like actually an undervalued now area to like go develop your career. And, um, are the young Turks, is that a, is that a group of people? Oh, no, so that's not like a little group of people. That is a name for like a group of ambitious young people in any one industry. And so there's kind of, you know, if you, if you think about the people that might be the kind of drivers of a technique or, um, field of inquiry in biology in the future, you know, where are they taking their careers? That's, I think, a great question, sort of an example, like where should you be investing? Maybe like, you know, five, five years out or something. And increasingly, I think many people that I've talked to have viewed aging as not just, you know, sort of financially interesting. That would actually be a, huge disincentive. If someone goes into a field to get capital in the form of a grant for that field and has no other reason to go into it, then I'd view that as like a disincentive to like invest in it. But they go in because they, they've seen some talk that somebody gave about the genetics of aging. And they, they hadn't realized previously that it was actually possible to make a animal live longer with a single mutation, right? Like I have said that sentence to so many people and they're eyes never change. And I'm just like, if somebody had told me that when at any point in my life after I understood biology, I would, my mind would have been blown to a normal proportion. And so I, I feel like the delivery's off because sort of like, it's really, it's really hard to get that across. But it, it's, it's this one fact where it's like, you know, if you ask me what's the secret that I think is like, you know, the, the best secret that informs most of my thinking that like is the thing that I think has the most value that if I could tell somebody like a great insight, what would it be? It'd be this. And then just, like, I think most people just, it doesn't register like the enormity of like how unexpected that should be, how big a deal that it is that we found like one of these things and how, how cool it is that, you know, that's replicated all the way through from worms through, you know, to flies through to mice. And, and it just, but the people in, I mean, in pharma, you know, if you talk to people who like head up BD divisions, they're like, oh, the reason I'm interested in aging is because there was this one finding like the 1980s and then in the 1990s. And so they, they get the specific technical reason why like the field is interesting now. But then most people just, you know, it's like, it's, it's very like hard to, understand the import of that secret but i think i think it's one of the cool secrets that you could you know be aware of calling it a secret is also a great way to get people interested and so if you're yes. listening to this podcast and you haven't yet fully understood <laughs> what the secret is can you repeat it once more you can make a, a argument that we should be able to reverse aging from engineering principles right you can say oh like if we add up all the damage in your body over time and we revert and you know we reversed it and and we, and we can or, or will be able to do to these like platform technologies that are coming out then we should be able to reverse aging right and like that that is a hard argument to make it may be makeable you know with some kind of prediction about like future capability but that, like that argument is hard they kind of like we like easy argument is that like we can just do what we've always done in medicine and change a single gene and literally get like an increase maybe not a sustainably sort of year over year enlarging increase in lifespan but like we can get unincreased lifespan with an extremely simple intervention that is similar to what we've you know the types of things interventions that we've worked on for other diseases previously and so i think i think that's the big that's it's sort of like you that that was a gift from nature like we did we didn't earn that we didn't expect that it was it was actively like my old professor a woman who like really uh, you know allowed me to work in science in the first place in the Kenyan, when she first published on this like discovery i mean nobody believed it it just seemed bonkers and so it's like if somebody told you there was like free money in the ground just like or like gold right in your living room and you're like okay well that's great and you just walk by i think like that's how many people treat this like discoveries like okay like that's just that's fine like okay if we can genetically modify like organisms to, like live longer like what's for lunch but it's like no like that is really cool like it's 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 like it, it, it it's not we didn't know it was true before 19 you know 80s 1990s and it's not something that we expected it's like a gift from nature so we can we can we can use it it's this weird yeah if we had a similar finding in the next like 10 to 20 years that was like another gift from nature like another secret that Laura Demi 20 years from now is saying, what what might that be? Well, I think the amount to which that gift of nature plays out would be a large. So one cool fact is we can make worms live longer about twofold, up to tenfold in one reported study. We can make mice live about 60% longer than normal using the same genes that we found. So like the, the cool thing is that you know the, the genes that we found actually, they're, they're kind of like brothers and sisters in our higher order bodies seem to be related in their function to like this lifespan effect. So you know, I, if we could make mice live like tenfold longer than normal, like genetic interventions, just a few of them, I don't know that that's feasible. I, it's probably more like two x is a, is a max for that. But you know, if that were feasible, that'd be a wonderful gift for nature. I'm just like the magnitude of the, that effect. One fascinating fact about some of the most sort of useful cancer treatments, treatments recently has been that we're using our own body to eliminate the cancer. We're not kind of like you know just nuking a cancer with like some sort of like very toxic entity, be that, you know, small molecular radiation, we're, we're using like our very super insanely complex, like 
like think of the most complex thing you can think of, and like that is less complex than like our immune system. And we're using that to eliminate cancer. So it's sort of like taking advantage of like, nature's tools to go after disease. And I think it, it would be wonderful if nature had some kind of inbuilt program that was that complex that we could use to reverse the course of aging. And there, like, hypothetically, oh, maybe we can use like the immune system to reverse the course of aging would be one thought. But finding other other kind of things to harness would I think be the, the best gift. What can we learn from tortoises? There was actually a recent paper published on the tortoise genome, um, which might be why you asked. I, I think the broader story here is what can we learn from every available mammalian and non-mammalian genome? And the interesting thing here, especially if you're putting your venture hat on, is you know prior to the 2000s, you would have zero information on the genetic information of all these animals. You know, prior to even now, you know, in the past, you know, sort of past three or four years, it would have been hard to sequence. When you do a full genome sequence for the first time, it's actually a lot more expensive, complicated, and difficult than doing it multiple versions of a human sequence. And so in the past four years, it has become a lot more plausible to look at like, you know, hundreds of genomes and compare them where previously we had like, you know, sort of tens. And that is a huge deal because if you ask yourself like, well, what can we learn from like the tortoise, you know, if you change that question, like what can we learn from every mammal about like basically any sort of variable you can care about, that question set is approachable now where it wasn't previously. So you talk to scientists all the time, scientists listening to this talk, they're, they're, they're entrepreneurs or technologists who, who want to build in this space. How should they navigate the idea maze of like what's possible and how do you recommend people finding ideas in the space to work on and how does that relate to maybe how is it different perhaps from, you know, if I'm building a consumer app or, or a traditional tech startup in terms of the idea process? I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I, I basically have like two things that uh, I say that they're contradictory. One is that like everyone should start a company in science and one is like no one should start a company in science. And the uh, sort of like the, the rationale behind the, the, the latter is that like it, the, the amounts of money that you need to raise are just huge. And so if you can't think about markets and money and like what's already been done, kind of like at context mentally for how to like just how to think about like either you have to have a co-founder that like knows that stuff cold or you, you shouldn't start a company because like I, so much of a biotech company is not just the idea. So many of the companies that we've seen that have done well started out with something that is totally different from what they end up doing. Right? It, it is like such a comp- Genentech, right? It's like never going to do, I think, antibody cell therapy. I was like, no, no, no. It was like, oh, yeah. It was like, now we're doing, now it's like major source of revenue is like all these things that we said we wouldn't do when we started. I, I think there's some element of like, you, you shouldn't start a company if you, if you don't have con- context for kind of your idea. But I, I think the kind of like then flip side is like, if you do have context for, you know, the, the market and kind of like the financing environment and you still want to start your, your company around your idea, well, then you definitely should, right? Because like that, Many of the ideas that people think about and then fail to do well developing were thought about, discussed, kind of worked on, and then feel for kind of like reasons that haven't really changed, you know, since then. And so there's a thought in um, traditional tech startups, which is that like founder market fit is pretty important. So like Travis Kalanick perhaps should work on Uber, which is like, you know, you got to deal with regulation, regulatory environment as opposed to like working on something like medium, which is like much more softer and about like taste words like Ev Williams should work on medium, but less so on like Uber. Does that exist Similarly, in the field that you, you invest in, or even more so because it like requires specific expertise, or how do you think about founder market fit? One of the odd things about bio is, you know, when we were kind of like doing our grand tour of colleges this summer to try and, you know, talk to grad students about their options and about how certain company was like an option available to them, there was capital available to do, and you know, they, they had all these resources and guides. One of the biggest questions was like, who should we look to as an example of somebody who's done this before? And we were sitting there like, oh, you know, like, Bob Swanson. <laughs> okay, bad call because that's like you know seven you know uh, quite quite a bit of time ago. And then you know who recently you could argue like the founder of Cell Design Labs is a great example. Of, you know postdoc kind of and then quick flip and you know maybe you know, you know sort of synthetic biology companies are, are a great kind of place to go looking for that profile. But um, when you say the word founder in biotech, often it means like I worked on this program in a large company and then spun it out, or like I found a great VC fund and then like worked with them for a couple of years to start a company. And, but like, you know, it's sort of like the VC fund's like half the founder of the company. And so the reason that question is kind of hard to think about is I think that we are super excited in trying to help more, more kind of canonical founder types where sort of like their personality really would influence the company get started. But a lot of companies in bio currently the profile of like their CEO is seen as like explicitly swap out potential, right? Sort of like you want to recruit like a high reputation person to run the company is kind of like the, the, the common statement, but they're, they're, they're seen more as a like, sort of swap out potential than they are as like the heart of the company. It's and not I, like Zuckerberg where you found the company and then you take it up again. Yeah. I, I'm just saying like how, how I think I would say the majority of companies in bio today are kind of thought about, uh, or, and like, you know, I, I might be misrepresenting the, the sort of views of fellow venture capitalists and also kind of like, I, I don't, I definitely don't want that to be, I, I would love for there to be kind of a plethora of like very founder driven companies. Like maybe Nick Leshley at Blueberry would be an example. Like, you know, that, that guy, 
you know, definitely has built a company that sort of stands out as unique and, you know, I think a lot of its personalities and viewed in kind of like how it's run. But yeah, I, I might be naive in saying this, but I, I don't, I, when I think about, you know, bio companies, I, I think there, unfortunately, there's, there's a lot, a lot less from like the, the founder driven ethos. And I hope that really changed. Like we'd love, we would love to help that change. Like that, that would be, yeah. What YC in 2005 or whenever they started, their insight was that, uh, or one of their insights was that young technical people could be CEOs and that they were not currently being treated as such treated as code monkeys or sort of secondary sort of MBA students and that they were going to teach, you know, young technical people how to become startup CEOs. Founders Fund perhaps maybe has a thesis after STEM centrics that you can take a very heavy business person, a banker, a very business minded person with a scientist and match them up. And maybe that's an ideal co-founding team. How do you think about ideal founding teams or, or executive teams for, for these types of companies? And, and can you take a scientist and a yeah. banker to sort of match them up? And broadly, how should you participate in these companies if you're not a scientist? I mean, I think if you can find a Scott and a Brian, then, you know, you should definitely invest in them and in, in the pair of them. Um, you know, one company that we're, we're very proud to be an investor in, um, you know, it was started by the former head of engineering at Khan Academy. And I think the fascinating thing there was, I, I think one of that CEO's major assets is just a, a sense of, you know, leadership and just, you know, anyone who, who has met Ben will, you know, want to go work with them. Just in, like, if you were working on a food processing company, someone would want to go work with Ben on that food processing company. Um, not to just food processing companies, less interesting than biotech companies, but, um, one common pushback from venture on people who are not scientists starting companies is that they, they don't know how hard it is. They don't know the amount of capital required. They don't know all these things that would, make you not want to start the company if you, if you didn't know them and that they're ignorant to like the, you know, sort of fine details of this kind of like art, artisanal science. And I think that that is a huge risk for mo- most people who just kind of come in and say, oh, you know, like I have some tech skills and I'd like to do something important that they'll be overly optimistic. But I think that um, if like a technical founder or sort of a sort of technical, but like not necessarily biology savvy founder is extremely curious and like intellectually honest, it kind of like removes a lot of the uncertainty because like they, they will accurately weight the probabilities of like them sort of like not knowing about X or kind of like underweighting Y. And it, yeah, so I, I think that might be, that might be an important thing. How have you updated your algorithm of how you evaluate people over the, like, are there certain questions or certain traits that you're absolutely looking for or, or anti looking for perhaps in a founder? I think curiosity is very important and like the right motivations. YC also has a request for startups list that they put out and say, here are the spaces that we're interested in seeing people experiment, innovate, build companies in. You might have something vaguely similar on your on your website. What, what, what is the longevity request for projects, request for startups, a request for places where you want to see like eager people here listening to to experiment or build up? I think that in odd way we're almost now anti company. Like we're we're almost biased against companies that brand themselves as aging related. Like I think that if your main characteristic as a company is that like you put aging like that you are aging relevant, that like that's not a that's not a good sign. Like that should be the way you describe yourself, sort of like. Uh, and, and there are a few exceptions where it's like people are just extraordinary founders and they're like, we just want to solve aging. And that is, you know, our kind of. And that's Ben Kamen's. Yeah, yeah. So like, <laughs> maybe that, that's an example of sort of, um, you know, then, then maybe it's simple. Like, I think, I think mostly what I'm fascinated by is just sort of weird kind of stories where you're like, oh, like that, that's super interesting, but I hadn't thought about it before. So I think like one example that I, I don't know if I'm right about this being interesting or, you know, and a, a friend, uh, Jan Lepard at Stanford is the first one to point out to him. So you know, menopause is a very fascinating phenomenon where you basically have a clocked onset of kind of like all these age related health conditions kind of getting like worse rapidly. Right. And like what, it's fascinating. It's, it's clock. It's like a clock that goes off at a certain time point. And, you know, we assume as humans that we don't have some program aging, but you know, octopi past a certain point, you know, some, some, you know, sort of specific species lose their mouth to kind of stun their eggs and like basically like commit suicide and you can reverse that genetically. And like, we're like, Oh, like, you know, we're, we're, that's so, you know, fun, what a funny suicidal octopus. Like we're not like that. And like, you know, then we have this phenomenon where we have a clocked onset of like sort of loss of health in this very specific way. And so stories like that, I think are just regionally, Oh, like I hadn't thought about that before, but that's really interesting are great. Or, you know, I think one other example is like we have a portfolio company, humanity, which is working on using yeast to screen for neurodegenerative disease, you know, therapeutics. And I, you know, obviously, you know, I think there's like, you know, a lot of questions there, but you know, the, the fascinating is just like the throughput and the robustness and the scalability of using that new system is so much greater than kind of like screening any, like, you know, a di- different solar system. That's, you know, I, I think that, that, that story just like has a very specific, like interesting factor to it. Why is there a shortage of, of founders in, in this space right now? And how do we unlock more? Most scientists don't know they can start companies. And if they've heard of that idea, they haven't seen success story. And they don't know like broadly what's involved. And I think if those things are rectified, then a lot more people would be starting companies in this environment. 
Um, and maybe a lot of them would fail as well, but you know, I think, I think you're just a lot more people would start companies. What needs to be true for, for us to unlock a much larger set of capital for aging company or longevity broadly? Returns. Like, you know, it's kind of funny. Like, I got into this business and I was like, oh, you know, like I, I, you know, I, I, I was like, I don't care about money. I, I just want to kind of go and, um, you know, promote the aging. And I, like, all I cared about was curing, you know, making aging a thing of the past. And then I realized very quickly that the, worst way to do that is to not care about money like you you almost want to care about money more than a wall street person would you want to have that drive to make money because if once you start making money like the market's very efficient right? like once you start making money in an area people are going to be like oh like that area is like that area is great like that is the area where you go to like make you know enormous amounts of capital and so or that's where you go to deploy capital and so i was like okay well you know basically shift it from a mindset of like you know like i don't i don't care about you know money so like no like one of our main focuses has to be making a like, wonderful return investing in this area because only then well like all the because that capital is not unintelligible it's not sitting there being like i want to invest in like bad opportunities or i want to ignore like areas of growth like it's like it's looking for good opportunities yeah. But it doesn't believe that like kind of like mission oriented areas are worth investing in, right? And so I think like us being just like maniacally focused on like, would we actually invest in this space if we were trying to make money? Yes. Okay. Make that obvious to everyone else is like kind of one of the number one uh, focuses. Yeah. Who, what are the people or companies that are right now working to extend lifespan that you're most inspired by, that are most contributing to the space, would you say? Or that you're most inspired by? You mentioned Unity, maybe Craig Menner is worth mentioning. Yeah, I, mean, I think it goes without saying that like all the companies in our portfolio would be companies that would be inspired by. I think Unity has done a great job being the first to really tell a story of aging well and attract large amounts of capital for it. I, I actually think that uh, one one set of companies I'd really respect is companies trying to make clinical trials cheaper. Like I think that um maybe that's kind of an odd thing to say, but you know. I, I, if I were to say, like, who would I award, like, the white knight of kind of, like, I really am so glad you guys are doing this, too, it'd be, like, you know, all of our, all of the kind of drug-relevant companies are, are very much up there, but I think the, like, highest-impact companies might end up being companies that are just making clinical trials cheaper. Because if you're, if you're paying $10 million to a company to, like, do a clinical trial, like, they pay, like, you know, $9 million of that to the clinical trial provider, like, you could have 10 clinical trials for the price of one if you decrease the cost by 10x, and so... Companies, I, I'm like, which companies I'm like most happy about that the more events should exist. It's actually like in that specific area of the world. Yeah. One of our companies, Verisim is, is trying to do that. W- what are the challenges of, of funding science right now? Is it just, it's almost tautological, like, or reflexive as soon as there's one big return, then it'll be, or are there are like fundamental challenges of the way labs are structured or science is structured that don't lend themselves to be. It, it's the timeline and the amount of capital required to get to return in the lack of like a good feedback loop, right? So like if we, you know, people are investing more into biotech now based on trailing returns that are like looking pretty good, but then, you know, it's sort of like they, but they're working, investing in deals that are not similar to the deals that were done to generate those returns. So sort of like, and as an asset class, it's, if you think about like, where, where is all the capital in the world coming from? It's like these large funds trying to invest some fraction of their capital into like, you know, potentially high return opportunities that like, you know, will allow them you know, they're kind of like, you know, say 8% per year, like, you know, interest sort of, or like return on capital. And so de- like demonstrating that is just, it, it's enormously hard. And like, even if you have a great idea, one of the problems is like that the market is so, the market is, is so not tied to like how good the idea is that, you know, Benjamin Graham talking like Mr. Market coming up to, you know, the kind of like bipolar person who shows up one day, like offering to, you know, pay hundred full for your business or like, you know, that's like Mr. Market will always give you a price in biotech. There's like a Mr. Market and he's just like, much more of a jerk and he will just not give you money for like five years or like, you know, so like you're dealing with this like very bipolar private illiquid market that like, will just like maybe not give you capital for like a couple of years based on like nothing that's specific to you, but like just the market in general. Right. So like, how do you navigate that? Like, how do you navigate that weird bipolar capital environment? Like you have to be very good at raising money. And so, yeah, I think it's just like the, the number of people who are brilliant and number of people who like want to take on that, like just, and it's, it's not, and not every startup would have, like, that, that, that's more specific to biotech than other, other startups, I think. And so that's the Sophian task of, like, dealing with this kind of, like, irrational, weird, kind of a liquid Mr. Market that, like, will just, like, not only not give you, like, give you a worse price, but give you, like, no capital for years is, is one that is, yeah, I think probably the, the major barrier. We're gonna play a game where I say, if you could wave a wand, what would you change about the following thing? So, so the first thing is how universities teach and fund science. I think I'd probably say something dumb about like there shouldn't be any universities, but I, what I mean by that is not that like they shouldn't exist or, you know. Maybe that they shouldn't exist or they should be structured very differently or, or just in a way that we wouldn't recognize them as universities today. Out of like one personal anecdote, like grew up and like never went to school and then like went to university and was like, what was fine at the university, just like kind of learning stuff independently. And so, but actually, no, I, I don't, I don't think that's a good model because sort of like everyone is different. And yeah, I don't. I mean, the, the, the one thing I really do believe is that like there's this perception socially of like, okay, the problem of funding science is taken care of by the government. Great. Done. And like, 
I'm definitely not averse to like funding for science, but I think this like sort of feeling that basic research is non-profitable to invest in and that you can't gain value from it. And they're like, the, all the capital should come from government is, is not one that, um, I think is super productive. And so just like opening up the market for private funding, looking for a profit to invest in science in any way, like would be great. And that could be like secure, like Andrew Lowe, like securitizing across multiple different high risk projects or anything else. But like, I think the perception, like, okay, like the, science funding problem is taken care of now by this one entity is really pervasive and I really don't like it. Right. Your, your line about we need to instill the mindset of scientists should be able to see themselves as potential entrepreneurs is similar to the, what the Tyler Cowen line about we should raise the status of scientists. It's similar in the sense of this both seem obvious, but I don't know how we do either of them. I mean, I think that's what we're trying to, right? So, like, our, our job is, like, make, like, like, make enough money that we can then fund early and early stage science to eventually point where we can, you know, hopefully be able to, like, fund people just on the basis of, like, you know, if we, your lab exists for five years, then in five years time, we believe that you'll be able to, like, do something patentable, but, like, we can fund you until then. There's a, like, common statement of, like, oh, you know, like, uh, funding should be not, non-profit relevant because, it, or funding should not be profit sort of relevant because, you know, you don't want to be feeling that you're sort of jeopardizing your research sort of direction in order to fit a kind of for-profit motive. But then I'm like, okay, well, wh- what is the alternative? Like, what is the unbiased alternative? The is unbiased it al- breakout labs? No, well, I mean, so the existing alternative today is like, you go to the NIH or the NSF and you're like, like, they're not unbiased. So it's sort of like, okay, now you're fitting the whims of like the public. And the public like wants all these, the public wants like cancer to be more, fun, more foundational things. And so that filters down through like, you know, sort of political ties. And then like you end up, you know, may- maybe you're less driven by like for-profit motivations, but then you're driven by these other motivations. So there's no world in which you get like unbiased capital for free that's like rationally looking at every opportunity. If you could change anything about how pharma works, what might, what would, in what, what would you change? I think pharma is a very interesting beast in that you have this like, like all, all this revenue coming in each year, you know, for, for like the top performing pharmas. And then just like, you know, demonstrate just like lack of ability to turn that into like productive internal research activity for, for the most of them. And like, I, I have no earthly clue what, what to do, because, you know, you know, sitting here pontificating, sort of like, you know, to be in the C-suite of, like, you know, say, to be Emma Walsey would, would just be, you know, on the ground, like, yeah, I think, I, I do think there's there's some potentially cool vehicle to be created that involves taking the revenue streams of, of drugs that you were kind of getting, you're seeing today, you know, using that to secure, sort of, you know, securitize kind of, like, earlier translational research in a way that doesn't necessarily have to be as tied to one company. It's worth, like, one, you know, what are the advantages of being a company? You get, you know, sort of, like, all these, you know, sort of scale advantages, you know, like, a lot of brand advantage, all this stuff. But then the disadvantages are kind of like multiple, very distinct kind of lines of business get tied under like one heading. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I think there's a cool potential structure to like create a different kind of farmer. So I mean, one, one thing I think like actually Neil Kumar's Bridge Bio is a wonderful example of like a very innovative approach to trying to develop multiple different assets, but in a way that kind of like is maybe a bit more focused and also maybe more efficient than like a traditional like larger firm would have developed the same assets. It's become a lot more legitimized as a industry, sub industry within the last five years. How has perception changed? Over the, you know, the fundamental question of, do we want to extend lifespan? Like, how have the optics around that and around the ethics, how, how have that changed in the last five years, if they have at all? Still very negative. People, uh, most people, if you ask them, will say they don't want to live longer, which I always used to think was very... Where does that come from? Are we, like, ashamed of... Is it, like... Uh, it's, it's well, I, I think the number one reason is sort of people don't... People are just answering a different question which is like would you want to live longer and be super sick and like unhealthy and the answer is like well nope like nobody would take that deal and so yeah i agree with most people like you wouldn't want to do that but I, and so once you get people past the hump of like okay well would you want to live longer and you get to be healthy and like have all your friends and like you know then then the, there's all the stuff like sustainability environment but i don't see anybody like killing themselves early like now to help right. sustainability so sort of like i think that yeah talk is cheap i mean <laughs> yeah but, i was like but, oh like, I'm talking to really bad. I'm just like well if you really believe that like like apart from the trauma on your friends and family like what like why yeah. You're, yeah, you're full of shit if you're not, if you're not committed to it. The, but no, I think they'll, they'll have an argument of like, no, death is important because it makes life meaningful. Like there is sort of a, a death meaning argument, which is it rooted in religion? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Okay. So, okay. Well, let's take it back to the Greeks. So if you go back to the Greeks and you go to like, you know, say Plato, you know, Plato's, I don't know if he really believes it, like, you know, Plato's talking to like, you know, you, you go to some place and then you like drink some water and you forget and you come back. Right. And so it's sort of like, okay, well, if we want to like mimic that, we can just like, Something like amnesia every like hundred years, right? So like you don't have to, and the other other things like you know, maybe go to the underworld, right? So you know, okay, Ulysses goes down to talk to Achilles, and it's like, hey, Achilles, um, you're now king of like all the men in the underworld. Like, aren't you happy? And Achilles was like, I would rather be the poorest serf in the house, like the worst man on earth, than like here, king of all the dead, right? So sort of like literally, the Greeks are telling us like, okay, you know, we we don't think this is a great call, and so 
you know, when is, when is like dying a great call? Maybe if you believe in an afterlife, but I like, you know, maybe if like then, okay, well, if I believed in heaven, like I probably, and I believed it was like, I could do science in heaven. Like, you know, I, I'd probably be okay, like going there. Right. But I, I guess, so I guess that maybe like you believe or don't and then sort of like, but I, then I'd be pretty careful to make sure like I, there was like a heaven and sort of like it was all ready. And so, you know, it's like there wasn't then like, I'm, I'm sometimes to like the idea that if I strongly believe that like I was going to go to a place where I could just like do science forever, like, you know, then I'd be like totally happy with kind of like going to that place. But I think like the, the, the existence of that place might be like something that you should like pay a lot of sociological attention to. Like, you know, when, at what point in time would like that become a very fixed concept? I want to say a, a list of people who you know and are friends with, and I want to ask what you've learned or taken away from them or maybe what makes them uniquely special. So, uh, Elad Gill. I, I think Elad is like a maybe surprisingly rare combination of both extremely intelligent. Like he actually got a PhD in like aging biology, which I thought was totally awesome. You know, super, very kind, uh, a wonderful like mentor, but I, I think also pragmatic. And that last, like being pragmatic in Silicon Valley is I think like somewhat of an under, like everyone thinks that they are to some degree, but I think like he actually is pragmatic, which is like pretty, yeah. pretty cool. And where does that prag- pragmatism manifest? I think that like the way he approaches problems is very like he'll sometimes say things that like I remember this one time where we were sitting around a, a huge table and there was like a bunch of people who were um aging biologists and like they were talking about like you know estimates of like how long people would live and like he just like threw out an answer that was different than everybody else's but it was like I actually thought more well thought through and that's yeah. sort of like he actually I think takes the time to, like logically play out the consequences of like technology advancing versus kind of like trying to say something like sounds really like what everybody else is saying. Yeah. Mark Jason. I think Mark I just admire his bravery. Like I think he's very not afraid to say what he thinks and will vociferously defend beliefs that are unpopular. And so I respect that. VJ Pandey from Adjusen. I think VJ has a very cool mix of kind of like being an amazing scientist and also very, very kind of like intelligent about venture. And it, it's rare to find, like, I think he came, you know, he had a physics background and then worked in biology. So just like cross-disciplinary sciences are always fascinating to me. But like the fact that he then worked in venture also is, I, I think like his mind is just like so cool. Biology. Logic, <laughs> and like maybe like a mix of Mark and VJ. Yeah, <laughs> Daniel Gross. I think like kindness. Like I think I think Daniel's like uh, an amazing mentor of people, and then also I think um like just thinks about building systems and kind of like you know building systems of people in, in ways that, like most people just are are not at that level of like thinking about like, how to get a lot of people to do something or be motivated to do it in a specific way that like I haven't thought through in advance. Peter Zio. I, I think I'm like the the bravery on kind of like saying or believing in views that aren't popular. Um, I think that like. When I first moved out here, I thought that I understood like what it meant to be contrarian, and then I was like, actually, really recently realized I was like, actually, for a long time, I thought that I understood what that meant, and now I really, I think that it was like, okay, what he was saying was not like be contrarian, it was like something kind of different, which was like, this is how I, yeah, and so um, I think I respect that and the depth of his thought, and kind of um, it's like weird to meet people who are obsessed with like trying to prove themselves wrong or like get to the truth of things, and and so I think that that's kind of cool. Aristotle. Aristotle? I don't respect Aristotle. Okay. Not a, I mean, I don't want to hate on Aristotle. I just like, I, I, I'd much rather read like Hume or like Spinoza or Nietzsche even than like Aristotle. What do you take from Hume? Like reasons a slave to the fashions. Oh, that, what is the most non-scientific belief you hold? Probably something around like cooperation or altruism is a good thing. Like I think that, um, like on some level, like I really care about like the, the search for knowledge and like more knowledge and, and understanding the universe. And I think that, there's there's a story in which like humans become subsumed into some sort of like, grander sort of thing that doesn't really matter, and so then cooperation matters to the extent that it allows for that thing to emerge. But like it, on a per human basis, like non coercion isn't actually important. And I think that like I have a weird bias towards like coercion is very bad and we should avoid it at all costs. And so like even if that like it, it conflicts with the kind of like stated internal principle of like pursue knowledge, you know, at all costs. I was listening to your interview with Tyler to prefer, and then I think that um I had it. Potential uh, statement about I think like the the terrible problem that was like the noxious problem. Like actually, one argument against it would be that maybe it's infeasible to have a bunch of people with Pedos and Muzak and like actually like maybe the society that would give rise to that kind of life is not one that would pragmatically exist, right? So sort of like pragmatically would it be possible to like make a huge society that was like filled with very mediocre people. Like actually might not like literally impossible like due to the laws of like like, like economics, right? And so the, arg- the argument would be that like you know flawed premise, flawed premise, and also. If you, if you have that many people, the even better version would be for them also to be like very happy, right? And, <laughs> and like to increase individual. And so like, it, yeah, I don't, cause you can take the same amount of utility and like spread it across like, the, yeah, that many people and then like, but they'd all be better if they were like not potatoes and music oriented. And so then, yeah, you have to like justify that like that is the only way for that resource to be like, like, I think that it'd be 
as easy or harder to, yeah, I think it'd be harder to make that society work than to make one that work with like where everyone was like a lot better. If that makes sense. Yeah. Anything you've taken from Tyler? I mean, the, the breadth of, is, is, uh, I think Janet Frame was an author that he recommended to, who's a New Zealand author that I never read and, and now love. So. Ending on, on this, for people who want to make a contribution or want to make sort of the highest leverage contribution to the, the space, should they try to unlock more capital in the way you're unlocking more capital? Should they start companies directly addressing some of these specific issues? Should they start charter cities so you can have them, you know, cities with no FDA and do a lot more experiments? Like what are ways in which people can have the highest leverage? I think make clinical trials cheaper and subset of them to understand biology and really just try and think about all the problems. And we can just be like, I wouldn't say work on aging as like, I, I really don't think it's a good idea to like go into aging and be like, I just, I'm going to work on this problem, even though I don't like working on it. I think it's like the people who will create the best science are the ones that are just like, curiosity driven it's not like like they care about the mission but like they would do it anyway it's sort of like they're like they find something that's true and so like that's why they work on it and then i think lastly just kind of being more positive and optimistic about the idea would like for most people be like i think that would just baseline be like a pretty good thing what needs to change for society at large to be more positive is is it results too is it like a big company or is it something more cultural yeah i think my thesis has been like we really can't ask most people to be excited about stuff until we produce returns and sort of like just head like just barrel towards whatever is the first patient that gets a positive like i it's like nobody cares about raising money right so like you know yeah. and like no even aside so you can go around and say like, oh we raised x amount people are just like yeah you know like another but if you show a patient that benefited substantially from a drug developed you know that targeted an aging relevant pathway that wouldn't have existed if like that line of thinking hadn't been around that is the like canonical point and so yeah until we hit that i i wouldn't blame us for being like you know sort of in fact I, I want people to be skeptical about it but i think that just being optimistic about the idea of like well like maybe maybe it's possible like also if it were wouldn't that be great what about your ma- more mainstream familiarity because most people don't know what billion dollar company means nor nor care necessarily like in terms of just viewing it as a ethical concept do we need a hollywood movie that sort of dramatized like <laughs> yeah you know it's funny i watched like this movie the age of adeline which was um actually very sad that like it was a wonderful movie but uh in the end like the protagonist the heroine like you know falls in love and like loses her immortality and then uh, is like very kind of like pleased with this result and um i remember just thinking like oh wow like that that's not great like we're good to have some counter to that i think like probably greek mythology is like the most strong argument for like thinking about immortality mortality in different ways but in closing, what is a field or topic or thing that you think is either understudied or under theorized that you want people to go uh, dig into uh what life is what life is yep like how do we make important life decisions or just like oh no sorry like what, what biological life is like what <laughs> yeah. how do we define life yeah, I think that's a good place to good place to end. If you find out the answer to that, how can they reach you? Or what should people stay tuned for? How can people follow your work? I think just emails. I'm like laura at h1.com is yeah. the best email. And if they want to apply to age one? You know, age one is this accelerator that we run where each you know, sort of six months we take in a batch of you know, five, six companies. We give them each half a million dollars and, you know, sort of in a, sort of a safe note and um, help them a lot in four months to achieve kind of you know, certain goals prior to you know, launching this company. So, you know, we're, we're actively soliciting applications for our, um, you know, third batch in a couple of months. So, you know, people should definitely reach out uh, with any ideas or, or things they want, want to discuss there. And if you go to ldeming.com, you can find an excellent FAQ on longevity and more about the work that Longevity Fund is doing. Laura, thank you for letting me grill you. This has been a, this has been a pleasure. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 